Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. It's opening day for Major League Baseball. The Red Sox playing the Orioles at Fenway. As a kid who grew up nearer to Boston, that area is solidly Red Sox territory. But I acknowledge that the 413 has divided loyalties. Where do your loyalties lie? Red Sox or Yankees here in the 413? And why? Text 1-800-639-9120, and I'll read your text at the end of the show, or tell me your favorite baseball memory. Text 1-800-639-9120. Coming up later, a tour of a new exhibit at Mass MoCA that wrestles with colonization here and abroad. It's called To See Oneself at a Distance. But first... It's time for our weekly McGoverning with McGovern conversation. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts and the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Worcester's own Jim McGovern, a weekly segment where you can send in your questions to the congressman by emailing the fab413 at nepm.org or texting 800-639-9120. The nation is once again reeling with another tragic school shooting in Nashville. And our first question comes from listener Tom Bassett, who says, Congressman Jim, what's it going to take for Congress to pass a ban on assault weapons, twist some arms to unclog the brains of those that deny the ban that was in effect until 2004 that reduced the number of deaths? Are we going to start taking action to save our species? Prayers and condolences to the families of shooting victims are not going to help prevent the next death. Why don't any media show the reality of the shootings, the blood-splattered classrooms, the body bags? Maybe that's more of a question for me. He says it's not real. It's sanitized. It's okay to tolerate, and it will continue unless we all take action. Passing laws that make us safer is Congress's job. Please make the assault weapons ban national policy. Then he goes on to say that he knows that you're not one of the ones preventing this ban. But when there is a disaster like this, we see and hear the rhetoric from Republicans about assault weapons bans. Meanwhile, there uh, is a very effective red flag law in a very, uh, in many regards, red state, Florida, that has seemingly been very effective. Is there any chatter from the right, from the Republicans, in regards to something like an assault weapons ban, national red flag laws, anything along those lines? Well, sadly, no. You know, we we passed an assault weapons ban uh, in the House. Uh, last year when we were in charge of the, of the House, but the Republicans are in charge now. And, and what we're hearing is, you know, the stupid commentary like guns don't kill people, people kill people, or, you know, oh, it won't make any difference, or it won't stop all gun violence. The stuff we hear over and over and over and over again. And it's really sick. I mean, these kids were nine years old. You know, that let that sink in for a minute. And, uh, you know, my view is that we could do anything to save a life, any life, then it's worth doing. And we know the assault weapons ban did have an impact when we had it uh, as the law of the land. But look, part of the problem here is money. I mean, you follow the money. Google who the gun lobby gives money to. And there is a correlation between gun lobby money and how people vote. And our challenge right now is to try to persuade the Republican leadership here in the House to allow us to even bring a measure to the floor, whether it's on assault weapons or whether it's on red flag laws or whatever, bringing anything. Let us, will you give us an opportunity to at least debate it and vote on it? If you don't want to vote for it, fine, but let the American people know who's on the side of the gun lobby. And we're being told no. It is sick, it is offensive, and at some point, people are going to have to make this an issue in terms of how they vote. I mean, if we can unelect 
some of the gun lobby's biggest allies, the people who are standing in the way of us even bringing any to the floor, then we can change the whole debate and we can change the culture up here and people will begin to realize that, you know, not only does banning assault weapons and some other measures pull well, but actually it determines how people vote. That's where we are. And we're going to keep on trying every procedural motion we can come up with to try to bring this issue for a vote on the floor and a debate on the floor. But the chances of us getting something through this Republican-controlled House are quite slim, I'm sad to say. There's also another tragic angle to this whole story, in my opinion, uh, as well. And this is from a Vox report. It says, after the horrific shooting at a school in Nashville on Monday, a group of prominent conservative lawmakers and commentators have released statements using the shooter's purported trans identity to reinvigorate their ongoing efforts to erode trans rights. Uh, I believe that Twitter has suspended the account of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene for some of the uh, rhetoric that she's been using in regards to this. But what's your response to your colleagues in the House who are trying to make this a trans issue rather than a gun issue? Well, th- th- I mean, it, it, they're bigots, plain and simple. They peddle hate. They sow division. They love to launch culture wars. What, what is their defense of every other mass shooter up to this point? This is ridiculous. Let's talk about everything but the fact that this person had access to weapons of war. I mean, we saw some of the video. I mean, you saw how powerful they were, uh, they were you know, going through the door and, you know, shooting through the glass and, you know, and rapid fire. And I mean, what the hell is wrong with you? Why won't you deal with the issue of guns? We're the only developed nation in the world, the only industrialized nation in the world that has mass shootings occur on a regular basis. I mean, we have mass shootings that don't even make the front page anymore. I believe we have more mass shootings than day, uh, in 2023 than days in 2023. And at some point, we just have to decide whether or not this is going to be the way we're going to live, you know, or whether we're going to do something about it. But we've been yeah. talking about this for a long time. You've been in Congress for a long time. Yeah. I know that you espouse these beliefs, but does it give you a sense of powerlessness when you are in the halls of power and yet seeing all these tragedies happen across the country day after day after day? You know what it does? It makes me really angry. I mean, and I, I mean, I, I have a couple of colleagues that, as I was going to vote yesterday, were talking to some of the reporters and, and just uttering this total BS about, you know, how, you know, we should not look at guns as the problem. And it, it just pisses me off that, that these are people that are in positions of power, that these people have, are, are voting to make my children and other people in this country less safe. I mean, what's wrong with them, right? And I really believe that when all is said and done, it comes down to the money. I mean, we, we need to figure out how we get money out of politics in general. But, I mean, really, a, a, a pack check, a fundraiser, that's more important than protecting the lives of these children? It, 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 it is so, so sick. And, and I guess my message to people who listen, we can't get weary. We can't get tired. We need to be in the face of those who are allowing this to continue to happen on a daily basis in this country. And um, we have to be better. We have to do better. And I really believe that we have to, you know, make this a an issue in the next election. I mean, if we can't do something between now and the next election, this has to be one of those issues that determines whether you vote for or against the person. And if we can defeat somebody um, who is standing in the way of sensible gun laws, that sends a message. And maybe that will allow us to try to convince some people who have not been helpful to join us in taking some of these terrible weapons off the street. 
Speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, McGovern with McGovern, uh, two follow-ups from last week's conversation, Congressman. Any more information on the Leeds VA, where a bunch of trees were taken down, a fence was put up, there's some light pollution. Any uh, research you've done into that facility I, that you helped to keep open? Right. I, I, I don't have an update on that. I'm sorry to say. Okay, well, bump I, it to I, next I, week. What about First Light Power leaking oil into the... I am, I, I'm having a conversation with Joe Cumberford later this afternoon to talk about that and a few other things. Excellent. And, and, and my understanding is that my staff has been in touch with her on that, too. Obviously, we're very, very concerned about that. And we're going to have to make sure that the powers that be there address this issue um, in a way that is satisfactory to the community. So we're doing that. And I also double-checked on the wild and scenic designation. You know, there's parts of the it was the Deerfield River we were talking about. Yes. There are parts of it that are free-flowing that are, would be designated as wild and scenic. Other parts that are not that would not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in any event. This week, the CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, testified before Congress. He's been accused of union busting. But you've been speaking with the Starbucks union org- organizers at the Starbucks in your hometown of Worcester. What was your response to Howard Schultz on the Hill in regards to what he was saying in regards to Starbucks wanting to unionize? Yeah, well, he's been the main reason why, you know, Starbucks hasn't unionized. He's not recognized the individual Starbucks stores that have voted for a union. You know, and I and I personally believe that's unconscionable. I mean, workers ought to have a right to organize if they want to. And clearly, the people at Starbucks wanted to unionize because Mr. Schultz was lessening their hours, trying not to pay them benefits, trying to find ways for his bottom line to increase and his wealth to increase by exploiting many of his workers. And so I'm on the side of the, of, of the workers. I think they're, they're doing the right thing. I think ultimately they'll prevail. But, uh, you know, the, the, the CEO of Starbucks is a very, very wealthy man. And uh, it'd be nice if he could share some of the riches with the people who actually do the work. And um, hopefully that'll happen. What do you make of his argument that saying Starbucks employees are treated better than most of your employees that are going to work in a coffee shop across the country? Let's say at a Dunkin' yeah, well, Donuts, better benefits, better wages. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always hate this kind of like, well, uh, you know, it's like we t- I, I was at an, at an event yesterday and we were talking about some of the human rights challenges and some of the things that the United States can do better, people said to me, yeah, I know, but look at China, look at Saudi Arabia, they're worse than us. So, I mean, the, the idea of saying, well, you know, there are others out there that, that aren't treated as well. You know, is that your measure? No, you know, the measure should be, uh, you know, we should treat our workers in the way they deserve to be treated. Don't point to somebody else who's not treating their workers well as a justification why you can not treat your workers well. I mean, this, we, we, we should be talking about lifting people up. I, 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 again, he's a greedy individual who really doesn't care very much about his workers. If he did, um, he would listen to them. And if he did, he would respect and recognize those Starbucks that have voted for union. You also this week, Congressman McGovern, tweeted a picture of Richard Gere hugging you outside the Capitol building. What was going on at that event and why was the iconic actor hugging you? Well, I, I don't know why he was, but anyway, he, but, um, look, uh, as you know, I've done a lot of work on human rights in Tibet, and um, we've introduced legislation that calls China out uh, right now because China is, is trying to say that Tibet was always a part of China, when we know that's not the case. And we believe that China ought to re-enter a dialogue with the Tibetans so the Tibetans can determine what their future should be. So we were talking about a bill that I introduced, and Richard Gere, who's been a longtime champion, uh, for the Tibetan community um, in the United States and around the world, and a champion for human rights for Tibetans, uh, was in Washington to be part of that press conference. He's a friend, and he's great, and it was good to see him. 
Meanwhile, the Biden administration is continuing to put forward the the notions of a one-China policy and at the same time welcoming the Taiwanese president to this country, which makes the Chinese officials very nervous. How how does the Biden administration, how do you square that circle with Taiwan, with Tibet, with China, the one-China policy, and all of these moving parts? Yeah. So look, I believe that we need to have a relationship with China. Um, And I want us to have a productive relationship with China. That doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to China's aggression or human rights violations. You know, I mean, I think we have a moral obligation to call China out on how they're treating the Uyghurs. There's a genocide happening there, how they're treating um, activists in Hong Kong. I mean, they've basically arrested all of the people that, that wanted a, uh, a one-country, two-system policy in, in Hong Kong, and we have an obligation to call them out because they're engaged in ethnic cleansing with, with the Tibetans. I mean, cultural erasure uh, with the Tibetans. I mean, it is, it is really, really horrible. Uh, and the people of Taiwan do not deserve to be invaded by China. Um, and so, look, we, 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 we have to continue to, to stand by our values. At the same time, we, we, we've had to figure out a way to cooperate. And I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. I'm not somebody who wants a confrontation with China. I do not appreciate the militaristic talk that comes from some of my colleagues here who try to out-demagogue each other when it comes to China. I mean, I, we, don't, we don't want war. We want to find a way to coexist and to work with one another on issues like climate change. I mean, there, we have economic interests that are, that are intertwined. All those things we want to continue. But I always have felt that if the United States stands for anything, we need to stand out loud and four square for human rights. So my hope is that the Biden administration will, will do that and not turn the blind eye to people who, quite frankly, are right now are being persecuted. There's two opportunities in, before our next conversation here. I'm a governing with McGovern next Thursday where you'll be in the district that have tickled my fancy at least. One is where 200 people will become U.S. citizens at a naturalization ceremony, and you'll be there with Representative Mindy Dom and the U.S. President Marty Meehan, as well as the current Chancellor Kumbul Subhaswamy at the Immigration, Citizenship, and Belonging. Two days of discussion, debate, and celebration at UMass. What's your role in that a naturalization, Congressman? I, I, I'm just, I think I'm, my role is simply to welcome uh-huh. people, to say how lucky we are that they have decided to come to our country and to become citizens, and, and the strength of our country is our diversity. And uh, so it's a day of celebration, so I'm looking forward to it. And that's Tuesday, April 4th at UMass. And then this Saturday, April Fool's Day, we had comedian Jimmy Tingle on the show yesterday, and he's doing a benefit at the Shea Theater. Full disclosure, president of the board of the Shea Theater, nonprofit community theater owned by the town of Montague. I don't make a single dollar off the thing. Uh, but we, it is a fundraiser for Franklin County Community Meals Program, and we were talking about how you um, supported Jimmy Tingle in his run for Congress as well as this, you've been on this podcast and the things he's done as well for food security. I love Jimmy Tango. I mean, first of all, he's funny. So people should come if they want to have a, a fun evening. Uh, but I also respect him for, you know, using his talent on behalf of good causes. You know, whether it's combating hunger or you name the cause, he's always there. So um, ending hunger in our community is it should be a top priority for everybody. And I know you, you have been up front on all this stuff for many, many years. and We appreciate that. But, you know, this is going to be a fun night. So uh, I don't know how people you, you, you could tell people how they can how they can come. But yeah, they can just show up at the door and get tickets. They get tickets in advance and uh, yeah. you'll, you'll be there to introduce the comedian. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm looking I'm looking forward to it. We're but expecting I'm, five minutes of good stand up material from you, Congressman okay, McGovern. Yeah. Uh, I got to I got to I got to I got to start working on it. But um, <laughs> no, but but taking me out of the equation, Jimmy Tingle is 
an incredible talent. And uh, and if you come, you won't be disappointed. Uh, and if you come, you're also helping a good cause. So I look forward to seeing everybody there on, on Saturday. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, the ranking member of the Rules Committee. You can send a question for him anytime, and I'll ask it on your behalf, thefab413 at nepm.org. See you this Saturday and talk to you next week. All the best. Be safe. It's opening day for Major League Baseball. Red Sox playing the Orioles at Fenway. The 413 has divided loyalties. Where do your loyalties lie? Red Sox or Yankees and why? Or what's your favorite baseball memory? Text 1-800-639-9120. Up next, a tour of a new exhibit at Mass Mocha that wrestles with colonizing here and abroad. It's called To See Oneself at a Distance. You're listening to the Fab 413 on NEPM. Oh, thank you. Chaos. My name is Megan Claire Considine. I am the curator of the exhibition. Um, thank you for joining us no, today. Thank you. We're here in situ as the uh, exhibit is being installed here at Mass Mocha in North Adams. The exhibit is called To See Oneself at a Distance. It comes from uh, the filmmaker Sunil Sensgiri's film At Home But Not at Home. Sunil, do you want to tell us a little bit about... Hi, Sunil. Hi. Uh, yeah, so um, the title of the exhibition, To See Oneself at a Distance, comes from a line in At Home But Not at Home, which is looking at these questions of diaspora and identity and memory and history and decolonization. And the idea is around the first film, which then became a trilogy of films, this question of like, how does technology and moving images change our relationship to questions of diaspora and identity? And specifically, like, what does it mean to um, have a dispersal of people across time and space to then be able to kind of uh, utilize technologies like uh, drone videography and, and 3D renderings to kind of situate the sort of distance, this critical distance, to be able to examine these questions. Tell me about what your relationship is to colonialism and why this is a topic that you wanted to cover in film. Yeah, so my family, my father's family, is from India, um, and specifically Goa, a region in the south of India, which was colonized by the Portuguese for over 400 years. Uh, My father lived through both the independence of India in 1947 and uh, the liberation of Goa, his home state, in 1961. And so um, he has these very specific memories of living under Portuguese colonialism. And colonialism is something we think of as in the past, um, as something that like is, you know, so far distant. But my my one generation behind me is someone who lived under the direct heat. Here's photographs of him in Portuguese uniforms and things like that. And, you know, the memories are not, they're, they're very banal, you know. And so a lot of these films kind of through interviews with my father kind of uh, look at the way like memory play into these larger narratives. It's kind of a collapsing of these uh, minute, banal, and kind of mundane memories of growing up under Portuguese colonialism with these larger threads throughout history. Although it's, it's interesting to think that people forget how close colonialism actually is. Puerto Rico's still real. Yeah. Well, and I'm interested to know what you and your, your family think about living in, in the United States now, which, you know, is colonized, has been colonized, and is still feeling the repercussions of what that means. I mean, I have a very antagonistic relationship with this country, just as my own kind of political standings. (laughs) 
where that comes into play, though, is um, pushing these questions of relationships to the past and um, understanding that the past is not so far gone as we think it is. So there's this banner that we have um, hanging in the installation over here. Let's go look at it. Right. Yeah, we can go look at it. That's what's fun about being at the museum here at Matt's Mocha. We can see it while it's happening. We're in space. Yeah. We're moving through dimensions. Yeah. Um, so this is an installation that I'm, we're st still in the process of working through, which features uh, the trilogy of my films. And there's a banner over here, uh, this kind of um, silk banner that has the words, your history gets in the way of my memory written on it. Hmm. And that's taken from a line from this Kashmiri American poet, Aga Shahid Ali. And Shahid was a poet who uh, passed away um, in the 2000s, but was writing a lot about questions of exile and, and memory and history, similar to how I'm interested in Kashmir, talking about colonization. Kashmir is now essentially uh, under the colonization of India. So it's a, it's the sort of instance in which the colonized become the colonizer. You have Kashmir, which was an autonomous state in between Pakistan and, and India, and is now um, under the throes of, of settler colonialism from India, where in 2019 they shut off the water, they shut off the internet, they overthrew the government, replaced the flag, and barely anyone talked about it. And it on it's ongoing, where um, Kashmiris are, are very much under threat. It's the most militarized region in the world. So this poet, Aga Shahid Ali, who has an interesting connection to Mass Mocha, too, actually. He has come and spoken at Mass Mocha and, and done some interesting things here. He was a professor at UMass Amherst, right? Right, oh. exactly. He was a professor at Amherst. This banner is from his poem called Farewell. And I'm really interested in this line, your history gets in the way of my memory, um, and it's ongoing effects today and thinking about questions. It can, it can mean so many things. I, I often think about it in the way in which questions of history are being put under threat today in the US in our context with you know, the banning of critical race theory textbooks um, or just books by black authors. And so you know, this, this idea of history getting in the way of lived experience, of an experience that tells otherwise, that says your narration of my life is wrong and I know it and you know it. Being in this room, I really like the context of having tactile things in conjunction with film because like film, although it connects you through eyes, is often kind of distancing in, in the way that you interact with it. I'm here at a good time, Khalees, because this uh, is a really tactile film, right? Yes. Sunil, like, can you talk a little bit about how you made that sequence? Yeah, there's some gorgeous, like, what look like high-definition shots of what may be a jungle or, or the ocean, but then there were these whited-out faces of yeah. talking heads. Yeah, so um, that's a scene uh, where basically I was um, hand-scratching these 16-millimeter, particularly one of them was an interview with the foreign affairs minister in India at the time in 1961, and he's talking about India essentially coming in and helping to liberate Goa, right, which was under Portuguese rule, and he has these incredible lines. I mean, he's just so clever and smart, and he's talking to this British interviewer, and the British interviewer is like, well, why? Why do you think violence is okay? I thought you guys were condemning violence. Aren't you guys? Aren't you guys all about nonviolence? And he's like, "Well, violence is bad, but slavery is worse." I'm sure. Th I'm sure the British will understand that, you know. And so, and so, it's just this incredible sequence. And you know, he's talking about this idea of Portuguese basically being like barbarians and saying like he's like they're living in the past they're living in medieval ages and there's this moment where I kind of put this question to the audience as a, as is featured in a lot of my works I interject my films with direct questions either 
to myself or to the audience, and one of them is about this term allochronism, which means viewing the other as if they're living in a different time, despite the fact that you are living together in the exact same time contemporaneously. So is it a portmanteau? Is it two words, like anachronism and something else? Well, it's... it's uh, Anachronism would be exactly. sort of out of time, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so allochronism, it's an anthropological term, and I, I'm, it is definitely similar to anachronism, but it's about human beings being out of time, mm. despite the fact that you're right there with them. Mm. So he, I, I'm interested in how this guy, the foreign affairs minister, Sort of reverses that by saying, well, the Portuguese are the ones that are out of time. The mm. Portuguese are the ones that are living in medieval ages. Um, it's something that Amis Cesar does in his discourse on colonialism, where he says, you know, colonialism brutalizes the colonizer. He says colonialism works to de-civilize the colonizer because of how much it turns the colonizer into a brute. The 16 millimeter sequences, I've spent something like three months hand scratching. Uh, and it's a total of like nine seconds, you know? Uh -huh. So it was a very art. It took me a long time to ruin this film. Yeah, exactly. It was during the, I remember specifically, it was during the insurrection, the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. And I was just like scratching this face out so hard. And it's a good way to get out any sort of feelings. It's therapeutic. You know, it, was, right. it was definitely had a lot of, you know, emotion in it. But yeah, so, you know, I, I use a lot of these different texts in my work, 3D renderings, yeah. sort of desktop cinematography, drone videography. It's gorgeous. Like, we're, I'm sorry that this is the radio for you listening, because like looking at these films is gorgeous. But hopefully we'll inspire some of you to maybe make the trip north. Make the trip and come really, to really, really beautiful. I can't wait to see what the room's like when it's done done. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, you know, can you tell them a little bit about our event at the Clark on April 28th? Absolutely, yeah. So on 27th, I think, right? Yes, yeah. Our, sorry, can you tell them a little bit about our event at the Clark at 6 p.m. on Thursday, April 27th? Yes, Sunil, can you? <laughs> I can. On the 27th uh, at the Clark, I'll be presenting a film called Sat Hindustani, which translates to Seven Indians. And it's a film made by a non-Goan filmmaker, but um, a really amazing North Indian filmmaker from the 60s, who made this film that's essentially about seven people trying to liberate Goa and undertaking this task. Uh, they all come from different caste and religious and political um, ideologies. And the whole film takes place sort of as one one of their comrades, who's the only go-in amongst them, is uh, ailing. She's on her deathbed, and she's trying to reunite this team that she w helped with them liberate Goa. By the time she's older, she's on her deathbed, these people come together, but they realize that they've come so far away from each other. They're all very different political spectrums, uh, very different ideologies, very different like caste and class backgrounds, and that becomes a friction point for them. So it's about this question of solidarity and this kind of inter-caste, inter-class um, question of what it means to fight for mutual liberation. Um, and so it's a really interesting work. It's, it, as a lot of Indian films uh, are at that time, not very well preserved, uh, unfortunately. So there's lots of entire like scenes will cut in the middle <laughs> and then it'll just jump to the next scene. You're like, well, I guess that scene's over. Well, at least you have them and your government didn't destroy them like Nigeria, so. Yes, we are lucky for that, for sure. And lastly, the um, one of the people who made the music for it is a poet named Kafi Azmi, who um, I really love. And he's uh, the father of Shabana Azmi, who is one of the more popular um, actresses of the time, and he's an incredible poet. 
Well, speaking of popular and filmmaking, yes. RRR was a huge hit, and it was a joyride to watch it, and there are anti-colonial elements in that movie, but depending on, I guess, who you talk to yeah. about the politics behind yeah. that movie... Real pro-Hindi. Yeah, and, and we're, you know, we're at a point where a member of the Gandhi family has now been expelled from the Indian parliament because they are you know, trying to oppose this very pro-Hindu government. What's your take on current <laughs> politics in India and or the film RRR as a filmmaker. How long do you have? I mean, <laughs> as long as you need. Yeah, so um, there are really beautiful elements to RRR. Um, you know, it's interesting to see it elevated to the status, um, especially at places like the Academy Awards, which ironically, during Natu Natu, they had zero South Asians performing in that dance number, which was really strange. Um, but uh, yeah, the politics of RRR are very questionable. It does not treat the Gond indigenous community in a very good light. You know, I think questions of colonialism in India cannot be separated from the current context in which we're, we're at right now. Like, you have to understand the history of partition and the way in which partition elevated certain religious fundamentalism that was already there before partition, obviously, but really, as we know with the British, elevates these tensions and, and completely destroy anywhere the British drew any line. We know that they created massive disasters in the wake um, Israel-Palestine, right? We're, you know, you can't separate those histories, but you also can't separate what's going on right now in the way in which um, certain elected leaders um, have taken advantage of these fear-based tactics to separate people, in, especially in, in along indigenous lines and in Adivasi communities. It's, it's super complicated in relationship to the long history of caste because caste is thousands of years old. Some people think that caste was like created by the British, which is not true at all. The Why? British, once again, history gets in the way of my memory, right? right? Right, like of course, like this whole system that has been there for millennia would have been only introduced by, uh, right, yeah, yeah. It's by brain bottles. It's easy to blame the British for lots of things. That one is not one of them. Well, this is the thing, it's, and that's why it's important to acknowledge all the nuances, the British obviously heightened all of it. They're like, oh, you already have a system of oppression in oh, place. Oh, understand right. oppression in this <laughs> Yeah, this, way? they're like, oh, this is fantastic. Awesome. Let's just we'll formalize just it. it. We'll just do this. Let's, yeah. just, let's just document it and let's make it a little bit more official. But beyond that, it's just that, um, you know, around questions of, you know, caste and indigeneity with the Adivasi communities, as well as, you know, this way in which uh, these elected um, officials will take advantage of how little resources indigenous communities and caste, lower caste communities have, and essentially elevate them to platforms on the BJP stage to turn them into token stooges, right? Saying like, oh, look how look how well we're treating Dalits. Look how mm -hmm. well we're treating, you know, scheduled tribes and Adivasis. The president of India is uh, a member of the Adivasi community, and she is essentially BJP stooge, unfortunately. That's not to, 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 once again, you can hold multiple nuances in once and saying like, it's a huge step in like, Adivasi representation to have the president of India being an, part of the Adivasi community, but what is she actually doing for the community? And the president's a figurehead; they don't right. actually they're not actually able to do anything. They have like one special power that they can do. But anyway, it's it's a very um, it's a very complex role. I am very just blatantly anti BJP, and the only way I can even do that is be, unfortunately because I'm in the U.S. Fortunately or fortunately, um, there's no way I could get away with saying anything in like this in India. I mean, I hope that I can still go to India after this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so far I have not been put on the radar of the BJP, which either means I'm not doing enough, <laughs> or well, I'm like operating under the way in which art can give me a little bit more cover than journalists. <laughs>
Coming up, more with Sunil Sanskiri's new exhibit at Mass Mocha in North Adams to see oneself at a distance. And it's opening day for Major League Baseball. The Red Sox are playing the Orioles at Fenway. If you care about that, you're probably not listening to this show. But I know that the 413 has divided loyalties. Where do your loyalties lie? Red Sox or Yankees here in Western Mass? And why? Text 1-800-639-9120. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the fabulous 413. Here's more of our tour of the new exhibit at Mass Mocha in North Adams to see oneself at a distance with artist and filmmaker Sunil Sanskiri. We're here with Sunil Sanskiri at Mass Mocha at the installation of your new exhibit. We're watching with you as we're talking this gorgeous film. And uh, you were talking about how you don't know whether you'll be allowed back in India, you know, considering how anti-colonial and anti-BJP some of your views are. How much of this was filmed in India? It look, very much looks like it yeah, was. Most of it is. Some uh-huh. scenes are films with my father, who's based in the U.S. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the first film actually talks about how I had never been to India and I worked remotely with a drone videographer there. And the question was about how moving images and images of the past and and different technologies can aid in this question of belonging and, and questions of being somewhere. My parents were divorced when I was very young. My mother's white and I grew up with my mother and I never got a chance to go to India when I was young and my both of my brothers did um, many times and I was unfortunately never able to and I never sort of gave myself that ability to either, mostly for financial reasons. Mm. Um, but um, it wasn't until I started making this first film and realized, I was like, wait a minute, what's, what's really stopping me from, from going there and, and really spending time with my family there? I have so much, half of my entire family lives in India. After I finished my first film, At Home But Not At Home, I just immediately bought a plane ticket. I was like, screw this, like, what am I waiting for? So I did, <laughs> and, and it was during, it was in 2019, but I landed in 2020, right before the pandemic. But it was during the height of this, tension during the anti-CAA protests. What is CAA? CAA was the Citizenship Amendment Act, which essentially sought to prevent Muslims from becoming citizens in India and revoking citizenship for Muslim communities. Um, And so there was this fierce backlash against it from Muslim communities. And there was this protest movement called Shaheen Bakh, which started in the Shaheen Bakh neighborhood in Delhi. And uh, it was the first protest movement started by Muslim women in India's history that we know of. And it was massive and it caught on like wildfire across the country and it was known as the Shaheen Bakh protests. Protests erupted everywhere around the country. In 2019, there was also, you know, like I mentioned, the takeover of Kashmir and the siege on the Jamia Millia Islamia University where there was um, students who were trying to fight for anti-caste um, sort of representation and also uh, trying to, you know, basically just fighting against questions of caste. And the police just came and just like beat the hell out of these students. Um, you know, it was it was terrifying. And I was seeing images of these here in the U.S. And so it was once again the way in which these images travel is like a big concern of mine. Like how do images travel? What does that do to our sense of identity? What does that do to our sense of diaspora? And so it was one of these things where as soon as I, the first time I ever landed in Delhi uh, or in, in India on the motherland, it essentially was one week after an entire Muslim neighborhood had been burned to the ground. Wow. And so that was my entrance to this. So I could no longer separate these questions of identity. And it's not just about colonialism. You know, I like to look at the trilogy as um, sort of the first film is looking at 
colonialism proper, the sort of, you know, the history of Portuguese colonialism, the long, long durée of colonialism. And the second film is looking at this idea of settler colonialism with Kashmir and uh, ongoing questions of, of sort of this fascist tendency, ethno-nationalist tendency in the BJP. And the third film is sort of looking at neo-colonialism in the form of mining industries that are going on in Goa and this ongoing extraction of land and resources and capital, you know, throughout the global economy. And we can see all three of these movies in they're, this yes, exhibit. Yes, in, in, yeah, they're on loop. This show's up for a year, which is incredible. And um, But you also won an award from the Brooklyn Museum, right? So is there going to be something? I have a solo show at the Brooklyn Museum in the fall. On, uh, opens October 27th. Wow, great. Yeah, so I'm going to be making, I'm working on a feature-length film. And um, part of that work will be on view. It's a two-channel uh, film. And... Um, it'll have multiple sculptures and 16 millimeter projections. I'm super excited for that. If you're in Brooklyn, come out for it's that. It's a great museum, yeah. It's, Go it's, to Brooklyn for the museum. Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for this taking so much really time with us. This yeah. is great. Thank you. Thank you for some great questions. I can't wait yeah. to come back here and watch the whole thing. Could I tell you about one more project? Of course you could. Let's go back into this room in here, because this is all part of the same exhibit, which is called To See Oneself at a Distance, now open at Mass MoCA, except when you hear this, it's open. It is being drilled and stapled and hammered to the walls right now. Megan Claire Considine is giving us this part of the tour here. To See Oneself at a Distance features brand new work from both Sunil Sansgiri and Hung No, um, and it also features work by Mariam Jaffrey and Kapwani Kiwanga. I'm really excited to tell you about Kapwani Kiwanga's Flowers for Africa project. Um, Kapwani Kiwanga uh, looks in the archives of the film and video records of diplomatic, political, bureaucratic ceremonies in newly decolonized African nations, and she finds in those archives botanical elements, and that can be as big as a garland or as small as a boutonniere. And she invites local florists, local designers, wherever the exhibition travels, to reinterpret those archives and reinterpret those records. In many cases, they're very subtle, very subtle elements, not very clear, they can be grainy, and it's not immediately evident what sort of flowers are being used. So Kapwani is a conceptual artist, and she depends on the expertise of floral designers wherever the exhibition travels to bring their own touch to the work. So I'd really love to introduce you to Tu Lee of 328 North. Yes, please. Um, who has done so much research and done such amazing work for this exhibition. Tu, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your process? Hi, Tu Lee. Sure. Hi, my name is Tu, and I'm the farmer designer and chef of 3 Trade North. Nice. So this show has been really, when Megan first approached me about it, and really all the history and knowledge of florals and my experience in Africa really started coming back. And that was my approach is really, the show is called Flowers for Africa. And we are really about localism at our farm and really intentionally where our food comes from, where we source from when I do food pop-ups to weddings to private events and I always who I bring to the table is really important so this show is all the flowers are sourced directly from Africa so it was really important for me to show that what is native to Africa and what is currently growing there mm. and also bringing in a ceramicist from Brooklyn a young Vietnamese ceramicist to create the pieces for this show instead of just buying it off the shelf mm -hmm. was part of how I work, the intentionality of 
how I go through my process. Like when I plan a, a Vietnamese food event, mm -hmm. it's really changing the narrative of what farm to table looks, smells, and tastes like. So we grow a lot of the food ourselves at our farm, and then I source directly from the farmer, like a whole animal, and build a whole wow. menu around. We're gonna have to come out for that yes. separate so, separate segment on that. So, <laughs> so and we re I, my partner and I just opened our studio at Greylock Works, so that's kind of a, a space we which is we, not far from Mass Mocha no, here in North. We, yeah. we we practice there, but we offer a lot of the products that we use in our food prop ups and like artists like Stephanie Vo who creates these things and other local BIPOC artists and the intentionality of space. I think the way we started our farm is I'm not interested in people making space at the table for me. I just want people to get out of my way while I build my own. <laughs> um, it's a good mentality. So that's, that's been very successful for us, not monetarily, but as far as a lifestyle when we built our farm nine years ago. So. I think that our work really represents that. It's not, we don't move in a monetary space, mm. and collaborations are a huge part of our work. And I think uh, the stuff I put out there really defines that rather than talking about it, just the intentionality of choices, I think, says a lot. I think my history as a refugee in this country, coming here as a baby, really defines how I move through the world and just seeing it through multiple lenses. As, mm. as a Vietnamese refugee, as an American, as a queer person, I'm constantly forced to move through daily life through a tricultural lens. So mm. that's how it reflects the work I put out there. And ties so, in perfectly with the exhibit over there and colonialism and the, the repercussions of colonialism, having to deal with it on these shores and the history of colonialism here. It is. Repercussions yeah. of colonial, ongoing. <laughs> well, and it's the sheer fact that I've been in this country for 46 years and I still ask where you come from, mm -hmm. San Diego, California. <laughs> but it's, no, where do you really come from? Right. So it's, and even my nieces and nephews who have children who were born here, who were born here, mm -hmm. are still having to deal with those things. So in lieu of challenging people's notion, for me it's just creating my own space and bringing in the people who I feel can share that space with me. So I can't wait to check out your farm and all the food yeah. that you're doing there. The farm is really great because 3 Trait North, we also offer a recipe because when we started a CSA during COVID, it was a recipe-based CSA. We're like, this is bitter melon. Here's a recipe to cook it. This is choice sum instead of spinach. Here's how we do it. That was the intention of what my partner and I did of like, instead of like, you're not doing it right, we'll just show you how we do it. <laughs> That's the lecture, like, yeah. because it's taking time to correct people. Uh, I'd rather use that time to create what we're doing. Kapwana's work is really, it speaks a lot to me because I do a lot of work that dries over time and like uh, people hire me to do installations and it's there for a long time because of the drying of it. Yeah. That's something that we didn't mention but yeah. is a key element of the project. The exhibition will be up for just over a year and the floral arrangements that two has constructed will dry over the course of that time. We so. can watch them slowly die depending on yeah. how the time, many times you come to yeah, the museum. It's, it's less about, in a beautiful way. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think Kabwani's project asks us to really think about the labor and care necessary to sustain freedom and liberation. Mm. I wish I could like 
take more of a snapshot of how it smells in here. It does now. smell great. Go so close to your radio right now and sniff. Over the course of the year. You'll be able to smell it. Because okay. it's going to evolve in a really interesting, that's going to evolve in a really interesting way too. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about sort of a centerpiece in the exhibition. We have Kabwani's Flowers for Africa, South Africa, and this is a garland that was hung over St. George's Street in South Africa in 1911. Um, and she found an image of it and has shared it with two. And two, do you want to talk a little bit about your process of constructing this garland? Well, I've been to South Africa before, and I know St. George Street is a famous highway now, a century later. So it's very interesting to see that image and recreating it. But how I work is, again, scents are really important to me, textures. But knowing the native plant of acacia and how many dozens of species are available in Africa, if not more, that I thought it was really important for me to find farmers in Mozambique and Kenya that grew these varieties. And it was important for me to use them in here because the smell is really important in anything I do. All the senses really... You can't really smell it through radio, but... Use your imagination. That's what the best part of radio is. You can smell and see it. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's it's green and it's floral, but there's, like, this little bit of sweetness to it, like, almost, like, a really light, like, whininess. It's wonderful. (laughs) But the one thing about African florals, like a nation as a people, it's not homogenous. There's diversity in one type of species of plant. But also it says a lot about resiliency. Like these proteas that grow on the Cape, naturally their land would burn first and then they come up. It's just a natural occurrence in where they grow. And then they'll dry beautifully, but that was how, how it is. Like, but a lot of these plants in Africa, the resiliency of an entire year, flooding, drought, wildfires, and then it all starts over again. And I just feel like that's a great metaphor for the materials I use is the nation I'm representing in this work. Thanks to Tu Lee of 328 North in Williamstown and filmmaker Sunil Sanskiri, their exhibit to see oneself at a distance is open now at Mass Mocha in North Adams. Despite the cold temps today, it's a sure sign of spring. That opening day for Major League Baseball is here. The Red Sox playing the Orioles at Fenway. The 413 has divided loyalties. Where do your loyalties lie? Red Sox or Yankees and why? Text one 800 639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. And Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm tempted to just sing along with Neil Diamond for the remainder of the show, but it is opening day at Fenway Park. And hope, well, they're going to hear this song today and every day that Fenway is open. Boston Globe's Andrew Mahoney writes, It's opening day and spring is in the air. Well, kind of. The sky over Fenway Park will be clear, but the game time temperature will be in the low 40s with a wind chill in the low 30s. So bundle up if you're heading to the game. The Red Sox finished dead last last season. They're hoping to turn that around this season. It's not looking good so far. Let's just put it that way. And I've been asking people of where their loyalties lie. If you walk through the streets of the 413, especially here in Springfield, Lots of Yankees hats. If I saw those Yankees hats in the Boston area near where I grew up, uh, there could have been issues. It was a different era. I think now that the Red Sox have won a few World Series, things have settled down with that rivalry. But we did get a text from Alan Sumpranant of Ashfield via New Bedford 45 years ago, says Alan. He says, this is Massachusetts. Doesn't matter if it's Western Massachusetts. 
The whole state is Red Sox Nation. Same in Maine, New Hampshire, and Nova Scotia, he adds. Go Sox. We also got a Pizza Quest text from Justin in Ashfield, who thinks we should go check out Country Pie in Ashfield. That's two Ashfield-related texts in the show today. Country Pie, uh, Justin says, has great crust. Sauce is savory and sweet. Toppings taste fresh, not overpowering. Christ, crust, not Christ. <laughs> Often like the New Haven pizza. I'm celiac, so I don't know firsthand, but their gluten-free crust is superb, says Justin in Ashfield. So you can text the fabulous 413. Your Pizza Quest recommendations, your Red Sox versus Yankees loyalties, and anything else you want to text, 1-800-639-9120. I'll say that uh, I'm a big Red Sox fan and that in I have three children. One was born in 2004 when the Red Sox won the World Series. One was born in 2007 when the Red Sox won the World Series. And one was born in 2013 when the Red Sox won the World Series. I'm friends with Fenway's organist. I told him he could make a deal with the Red Sox organization to pay for another Belmonte child to win them another World Series. Uh, But they went and did it all by themselves again in 2018 um, with a little bit of of cheating, if you followed that. We'll, We'll see how the Red Sox do this season. We hope to have Fenway's organist Josh Cantor on with us soon. Meanwhile, tomorrow on the show, Live Music Friday with our in-studio guests, Cloud Belly. They're playing on an excellent bill with Moxie and Lux Deluxe at the Drake and Amherst tomorrow night. Cloud Belly will perform for you live in the studio tomorrow. We'll head back into the Wine Thunderdome with the Wine Snobs at State Street in Northampton. Are you or do you know a wine aficionado who wants to drink with us in the Fabulous 413? Shoot us an email, thefab413 at nepm.org. Our director is Tony. I guess you're the one with car trouble now done. Our engineer is Betsy, aspiring baseball announcer, Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, prepping the new studios ranking. Kara came in early, but not for me, thankfully, Foster. And Punk Rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Raul Sipunji, Kalabagaria, Hugh Masakela, the Dropkick Murphys, the Standells, and Neil Diamond. I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.